it's 23rd of June 2019 and this is episode 106 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Not particularly Star Warsy, just because I've had lots of other stuff going on in my regular life. Mainly films. <laughs> There's lots of films right now that I need to watch. Well, not need, but really want to watch, which is a nice thing. Um, but yeah, the main Star Wars things have been some cool news that's come out that we'll obviously discuss in due course. Um, and both of us have also finished reading Master and Apprentice, which I know we're very excited to talk about later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much my news. I have a very tenuous Star Wars link <laughs> this week. Okay. Um, I've been watching John Favreau's new series on Netflix, which is The Chef Show. Ooh. So it's based on like the recipes that he made during the filming for the movie Chef. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't. No, I've heard of it oh. though. Okay. I love food movies and food TV. So <laughs> right up my alley. Um and he's so likable in the show and the movie as well. Like it's kind of getting me excited for the Mandalorian, which I know we won't see him on screen unless he like has this surprise cameo or something. Um but I recommend that to people who want a John Favreau fix before the Mandalorian comes out. Awesome. <laughs> he's extremely passionate about food and he's with his friend Roy and yeah, it's just a delight. So check it out if you like food <laughs> that makes me think that i'd really like to see gratuitous food porn in the mandalorian you know just shots of really really yummy looking food for no particular reason because yeah, yeah. you know what what i would love is if they did like a little series of him like they could just do like a web series for the star wars youtube of him going around galaxy's edge tasting all the food and drinks and maybe <laughs> learning how to make some of them that would be fun. That sounds really cool. And that would be a nice way to draw in people like us, the poor souls who could not go in the immediately foreseeable future. So <laughs> Yeah, it's like how to make green milk at home. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That, you know. Yeah, draw in the less fortunate of us. <laughs> Let's get out of little tiny violin. Can't go to Disneyland. <laughs> the ultimate in first world problems. We can't go to the immersive Star Wars theme park. <laughs> <laughs> Not right now, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. One day. So in the news, the main thing that we want to lead with is that we have more details on the Age of Resistance comics lineup. And this is courtesy of the official Star Wars website. So would you care to read out the blurb from the website, Kirsty? Sure. Marvel's Age of Resistance miniseries, following the popular Age of Republic and Age of Rebellion, kicks off next month with each issue shining a light on icons of the Resistance and First Order. StarWars.com is excited to reveal four stunning covers by Phil Noto for some of the series' most eagerly anticipated installments, coming in September. Age of Resistance Rose Tico, Supreme Leader Snoke, Rey, and Age of Resistance Kylo Ren. Get a first look below along... Basically, they give you the covers and uh, descriptions of the stories, which we'll get into in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I saw variant covers of Finns and Huxes floating around as well. Yes, I have seen those. I haven't seen blubs though, which is sad. No. Like, although I think we have actually previously had information on Huxes at least, because I've seen for a call Huxes involving him having to like reluctantly team team up with Kylo Ren on a mission or something. Oh, is that that one? I thought that had already come out. I think that's I feel like that we've one. been 
we've been hearing about these for a while they've really been amping them up but i guess that makes sense because it's sequel trilogy stuff and we love sequel trilogy stuff so exactly i think they're trying to milk it for all it's worth Mm -hmm. um yep so all these comics they've all been written by tom taylor and the cover art for all of them seems to be by phil noto so i'll just go through the synopses of the issues and then we'll talk about them in turn so the first one to talk about is Rose's issue, which is called My Hero, and the synopsis. Sisters, friends, co-pilots. Growing up, Rose and Paige Tico were everything to each other, until the First Order tore their world apart. See the bond between Rose and Paige before it was forever broken. This sounds like it's going to hit us in the feels, Kirsty. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of Cobalt Squadron, because that was them together before everything went tits up in The Last Jedi as well. Yeah. Um, it's really nice to see them together. They obviously love each other so much and they're what remains of their experience like growing up. Um, so obviously they've left their parents behind and everything and oh god <laughs> there's going to be some tears over this one I think. Yeah I think it'd be quite traumatic from the way the synopsis is written I get the impression that we're going to see them as children together which I find a really interesting prospect because Cobalt Squadron is very much just before The Last Jedi, right? Oh yeah, the the ending, it leads right up to it. Like when they actually say goodbye to each other and Paige goes off on that mission. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty intense. But yeah, so because of that, you're right. It, it probably takes place much earlier than that. Yeah, so it'll be really exciting to see that bond form. And hopefully we'll also see how they came to join the Resistance in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So then we have Snoke's issue, which is called The Devil's Apprentice, which is a great title, just to be clear. Um, and this one and Roses, they're both out in September. Um, so the 4th and the 11th, respectively. Um, and the synopsis of the Snoke issue is, Supreme Leader Snoke's brutal training of Kylo Ren begins. Will the sadistic Snoke break his tormented protege? Or has he underestimated the son of Han and Leia? It, this sounds right down to the title more about Kylo than Snoke, but you know what? I'm okay with that. Yep. I'm totally <laughs> cool with it too. <laughs> it's really great. And it sounds like this is going to scratch an itch that I know a lot of people had. So they really wanted to see more of Snoke training Kylo. And that sounds like that will be the entire premise of this issue. Yeah, I mean, if he's saying it begins, that implies that this is pretty soon after the whole stuff at the Jedi Temple went wrong. So mm. might we get Kylo reflecting on that stuff? Or I mean, they're, they're probably still going to be careful because they don't want to step on any toes. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the first of this type of content with really delving into their relationship before the sequel trilogy events. And I do like that they're emphasizing that he's the son of Han and Leia. So yes, he's underestimating him. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's going to be really interesting because we already have those bonds between Masters and Apprentices strongly in mind from the book Master and Apprentice. So it's going to be really fascinating to see the nature of that dynamic. We obviously all already have certain preconceptions about the manner in which Snoke has taught Kylo Ren and that dynamic, like mainly being that it's a very creepy dynamic that leaves everyone feeling uncomfortable. But yeah, well, it'll be yeah. good to see it fleshed out. It's interesting, the language that they're using here, we probably shouldn't attach too much importance to these synopses, but like the idea of Snoke breaking him, well, why would he need to break him if Ben went freely after what happened? 
mm. or if he'd he'd already turned as luke said snoke had already turned his heart it's like well what what more was there for snoke to do obviously we know from the movies that kylo is still conflicted at that point even after all of these terrible things he must have been doing in the meantime but there is this notion here of of ben somehow like resisting him on some level or not being entirely happy with everything that went down it's like okay so i guess it'll just highlight the the difference between dark side and light side mentorships like you say exactly yeah, and it's particularly interesting that they're choosing to present kylo ren in this manner like as the tormented protege like in the run up to the rise of skywalker because these comics they are ultimately going to be a form of marketing for that movie so I'm not saying they necessarily knew what JJ's plans were for The Rise of Skywalker when they wrote these comics, but I imagine they had some sort of very general idea about what was and wasn't okay to cover in terms of this part of the character's journey is all right for you to cover. And this is perhaps an insight into the mindset of that character at this time. You know, like, what do you think? No, I agree. I mean... You never really know comics because I know there's been a lot of discussion around that recent Vader series and how much that should be taken seriously as an addition to canon. Mm. I mean, I, I agree that it could be considered part of the marketing towards Rise of Skywalker. So the characterization of all these characters, it has to be like consistent to a degree. Exactly. Cool. Then Ray's issue is on sale on September 18th and the synopsis. After Han Solo's fall, Rey searched for Luke Skywalker, but before Luke, there was Leia. Witness never-before-seen moments between Rey and General Organa. What will Rey, Chewbacca, and R2-D2 encounter on the way to find Leia's missing brother? So, I really like the sound of this, because this clearly seems like they're going to do gap-filling. Like, in those few days after the main events of The Force Awakens have wrapped up, but before Rey actually sets off to find Luke. So I think that'll be really interesting. So even though it's a very narrow window of time, I feel like there would have been some critical conversations and interactions in that period. You know, because Rey obviously has this connection with Leia's son, for example. And did that come up between them at all? Because there are slight allusions to that in the novelization, but that like how much you can take that seriously is questionable so i feel like something in this sort of comic released at this time would be a bit more tangible basically yeah i was wondering if this would be building on what we already knew from their discussions of the novelization or if it's going to be totally new Mm. but this is obviously a a point where ray has total faith that luke's gonna want to come back to the fight she just has to find him and that's it um and leia is still very much like oh yeah i just need to find my brother luke i really need to find him and then he's the key to all of this um so i think maybe a lot of their conversation will focus on him too yeah i'm curious to see how it plays out um i think it's also significant because we're going to be seeing more of that ray and leia relationship in the rise of skywalker because obviously in the trailer we do see that scene where ray and leia are hugging for example So we are going to have some further interactions there. They're obviously going to be using old footage of Carrie to make those happen. And most likely footage of her from The Force Awakens and even from this specific point in Rey's journey because that was the only time that Rey and Leia ever met in the movie. Um, And 
yeah, I, I, again, I'm just so intrigued. After everything has come out and we've seen Rise of Skywalker, I'd love for there to be like a no questions barred, like sort of Q&A with Tom Taylor about, okay, how much did you know about what was coming and how much did that inform the stories you were writing? Yeah, I mean, first impression, I would say very little because they're so secretive. Mm. But you know because like last week we were talking about the lego game and they still haven't told any of those guys even vaguely what happens in the rise of skywalker <laughs> i don't know i think they could be like secretive to the point of almost a ridiculous degree i mean i get why but they can shoot themselves in the foot a bit sometimes well it depends because i'm sure these will be entertaining but Part of me feels like they probably do have to go back and kind of do some filling in with the emotional resonance of Leia and Ray's relationship because, you know, you can have them hug and have like these little heart to hearts at the end of a movie, but there's been no development in the meantime. Yeah. So it's like, we have a connection because we both have the force and you have a force bond with my son. But in actual, like between those two characters, there's not an awful lot. And I'm, know we've talked before about there being uh i won't say this is you know it's not exclusive to the sequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy is actually an improvement on it but in general relationships between female characters are lacking in star wars <laughs> so oh 100 percent. so they might be going back and kind of putting a band-aid on the whole thing yeah i kind of get that vibe from this to be honest and i'm really glad to see that relationship between Rey and Leia given more time and developed a bit further. But yeah, it, it just feels a bit wistful because you're like, oh, I wish we'd seen this more in the films. And of course right. now that's inevitably limited. But yeah, you can't change the past, but it would be nice if you could. <laughs> um, yes, and just because I forgot to say it, the title of the Rey issue is Search for Skywalker. So not particularly surprising. Um. <laughs> Right, and then the final issue that has a blurb available to us right now is the Kylo issue, which is on sale September 25th. And this has the magnificent title, A Dynasty of Doom! Complete with an exclamation mark, which I love. Um, And the synopsis. Anakin Skywalker casts a long shadow. Can Kylo Ren ever escape his infamous grandfather's reputation? Or will he succeed where Darth Vader failed? So, where do we even begin with this? It's so freaking ambiguous. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't give you a taste of plot. It's more like kind of summing up that <laughs> that issue for Kylo that's been there throughout all of the movies so far. Um, I do like that they're using Anakin and, and Darth Vader interchangeably. Mm. I know that sounds silly and it's a very small thing, but they're the same person. So, <laughs> yeah, there's not a neat cut off line. Yeah, well, I think for some people there might be. It seems to be like connecting that as like the legacy, the, the weight of that for Kylo. Exactly. I'm very curious about this issue in terms of where it takes place in the timeline. There's obviously no way of telling whatsoever until we get more information. But I'd love at least one of these stories to be after The Last Jedi. Well, doesn't it look... I mean, he has his scar, right? On the cover. He does have his scar. I'm just... A little bit dubious as to how much we can trust what the characters look like on the covers because rose for example she's in her last jedi outfit in her cover but from the sounds of the synopsis i don't think we're going to see her at that point in the comic you know so i think well, it's very they much they might about- be going with that i mean 
they they could have Rose and Paige in the Resistance already. Sure. But even if they don't, we've never seen Rose as a young person, so it would make sense for them to like show her, hey, this is Rose, but Kylo they could draw without his scar or with his mask on. And yeah. he has different outfits that we recognise. So it seems more like a choice. It's true. I hope you're right, because if he has the scar at the time of the events of the comic, then that obviously means it has to happen after The Force Awakens, which inevitably means it happens either during or after the events of The Last Jedi, because The Last Jedi follows on so closely from The Force Awakens. Um, And yeah, that's what I want. Give me my Supreme Leader Kylo Ren, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a simple woman with simple needs. Um, But yeah, I'm really psyched for these. I haven't been buying any of the Star Wars comics, just because it's such a slippery slope and there's just so many and it gets expensive and all of that but i think i'm probably going to make an exception for these because this is what i've wanted for a long time more like stories about these sequel trilogy characters i feel like i need to show that i want these through the power of my purse so yeah i'll try and do that yeah i think it's you know probably clear to people that we are sequel trilogy fans so mm-hmm. it's exciting to see this series um it seems like the other other sections of the series have been received well so far so hopefully these are too exactly yeah i'd love it if anyone's been listening to scavengers hoard up until this point and hasn't caught on to the fact that we're big sequel trilogy fans well not just the fact that we're fans of that but like that's primarily where our interest in star wars fandom is oh like, sure we love yeah. the older movies but like this is new stuff so um we really love these characters so it's nice to finally see them being freed up a bit more for stuff like this yeah 100 percent. okay cool so we'll now move on to the next story which is that michelle rejuan has been announced as senior vice president of live action development and production at lucasfilm which is exciting um, would you care to read out the article from Variety, Kirsty? Um, Rejwan will oversee a new slate of feature films and episodic series for Lucasfilm and Disney Plus, and continue to produce with Kennedy on the Star Wars franchise. Working with Michelle over the last seven years as a producer on both The Force Awakens and now The Rise of Skywalker, I have seen firsthand her skills collaborating with writers and directors, and I've been incredibly impressed with her creative skills and her ability to manage the complexity surrounding these massive projects, said Kennedy. I know the importance of building a team that you trust and have fun working with. It is paramount to our success. There's an exciting momentum building around the future of the franchise, and both myself and the Lucasfilm team look forward to working with Michelle and shaping the future in all areas of story development, from theatrical film development to live-action content for Disney+, she added. So yeah, like I'm really excited to see this new position being created. Um, I've seen a lot of people compare like this new role um which i think is quite similar to kiri hart's old position um but it's obviously hard to know the particulars because we're obviously not internal people working at lucasfilm um but i've seen some people compare the position to what kevin feige does at marvel um with the idea being that it would very much be a pivotal role in shaping the future direction of the live action movies and tv series so it sounds like an amazing opportunity for her And yeah, in terms of her experience, she has been working with JJ for a long time. Um, 
I believe, his assistant for several years. But it looks like she was his assistant in much the same way as Kathleen Kennedy was the assistant to Steven Spielberg early in her career, basically, and was like really heavily involved with various productions and was being called upon to show a lot of skill and talents and yeah that's all backed up by Kathleen Kennedy's statements um I think with anything like this because we obviously don't know what this person is like to work with we don't know what her style of working is or what her creative leanings are we just have to wait and see in terms of waiting for the proof in the pudding you know we need to see what she actually works on and the calls she makes and what sort of projects are developed going forward but I've one thing she seems very amply qualified and I'm excited to see where she goes with it sure I mean I'm kind of the same way I'm not an expert on what producers really do beyond seeing how they operate in various behind the scenes documentaries (laughs) Um, but I like The Force Awakens so if her future work is like in that realm then great um and obviously i'm i'm happy about lucasfilm hiring more women so mm-hmm. yeah i don't have too much to say beyond cool let's watch the space I, I mean i think it's interesting that it's a bad robot hire oh yeah i i think it shows that she's really like crossed the divide so to speak i'm not sure that it even is a divide you know between lucasfilm and bad robot they've been collaborating very closely on force awakens and rise of skywalker but it's cool to see that those work relationships are obviously so close that Kathleen Kennedy's had lots of opportunity to see Michelle working firsthand and has been impressed by her to the point of trusting her with this great responsibility. Mm-hmm. It kind of bothers me that I've seen a lot of podcasters and YouTubers like really flip their shit, basically, about this decision to put Michelle in this title basically at Lucasfilm like with the general argument going along the lines of she doesn't have enough experience to fill this role what the hell is Lucasfilm doing blah 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 (sighs) which I just find so exasperating because if you look back at say Kevin Feige again like at the point that Kevin Feige like became the overseer of all things Marvel like in the late 2000s he really had a similar level of experience in terms of what he'd done in Hollywood like he was rarely a full producer on a movie before the first Iron Man movie and look how loved and fated he is now so that's why I'm this role believer in the angle that look we just need to wait and see what she does I think anyone crying doom about this decision is just being so unreasonable and so unfair because none of us have any idea about this woman's personal qualities and it's just wacky to me that people could look at someone's IMDB profile and use that to form authoritative judgments about what someone is capable of. So oh, I'm not surprised in the least. <laughs> I guess I'm not surprised, I'm just You know what the difference is between her and Kevin Feige, Rachel? Uh she has long hair. <laughs> no. <laughs> She's a lady. <laughs> yeah, she is. We can't have women getting these positions without having more than earned their their weight and their credibility. Only men are allowed to do that. Surely women can't be real Star Wars fans. (laughs) Like you'd need to be a Star Wars fan to do this job well. Yeah, I, I'm not kidding you, Kirsty. I saw some like idiot on their YouTube video, like saying, 
oh, I'd show her a picture of this obscure Star Wars species and I'd expect her to know what it was called. And I was like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> it's like, it just bothered me so much because it's like, that is the most irrelevant piece of trivia like possible. You know, what difference does that make to whether this woman can fill this position and do this job well? It's completely immaterial. I don't think that even deserves a response, to be honest. That's kind of embarrassing for the person who said that. It is. Like, I, you know, because we're saying we don't know what goes into this role. We don't know. So maybe other people... I, I don't know. It just, it seems like a lot of people have all these opinions about a company that they don't work at. And I know when you have a podcast, you have to give your two cents. But I don't also understand why it can't just be, cool, there's this news. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. Um, there always has to be a hot take or dragging someone down before they've actually had a chance to do the job. Exactly. And just the idea of getting outraged. I could understand someone saying that if they hated The Force Awakens. Mm. You know, like basing it on something that she'd already done, like Star Trek Into Darkness and saying, oh, I really didn't like these movies, so that's why I have a concern. But the idea that she just hasn't done enough to earn that position, well, that's kind of between her and Kathleen Kennedy, so not really our concern. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a silly part of the discourse, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So then the next thing just to mention in passing is that tickets have gone on sale for Star Wars Celebration 2020, which still sounds like a bizarre sci-fi concept. Um, and the four-day tickets are already sold out and the Friday and Saturday passes are at least 80% sold out. So yeah, they're selling like hotcakes, basically. And by the time this episode publishes, those days could easily be sold out. So yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I think the Anaheim Convention Center is a lot smaller than the Chicago one. So I don't know what that means for actual ticket numbers. Right. Um, but either way, they've been popular. Congratulations to everyone who got one. I know that must have been quite a stressful <laughs> experience, trying to get in that virtual queue and get what you wanted. Yeah, no, it'll be a great time, I'm sure. And yeah, even though Kirsty and I will not be present, we'll be there spiritually. And no, I mean, we'll be watching the YouTube stream, but that's fine. <laughs> it is fine. Like, um, you know, there's there's lots to enjoy about that too. So yeah, it'll be nice to experience it with literally zero stress. <laughs> well, it's just also... I mean, I'm, I've seen people saying this who actually do have the tickets. It still feels so far off that it's like this hypothetical concept as opposed to this actual event that's on the horizon because, yeah, it's still over a year away and we just had Celebration in Chicago. So everyone's still kind of digesting the content that came out of that. Yeah. Yeah, and this is going to be post-sequel trilogy, so it's going to be an interesting time. Yeah, brave new world. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We don't have anything announced to talk about the actual content of the, the convention. I just assume they'll have lots planned because it's, <laughs> it's four days and they have to plan nonstop. So I think the five days last time was maybe a bit too much. Yeah. So I'm presuming that the Friday, they're not going to do it like they did before with the Thursday. It's just kind of like the show floor, but no panels or anything. Mm. Maybe it'll be a bit more streamlined this time. Because the, presumably they, they understand that lots of people are going to want to make their way to Galaxy's Edge too. So Yeah. It'd be really funny if they just, rather than actually programming anything, they just had like a video on the loop of Kathleen Kennedy beatboxing. <laughs> that, <laughs> and that was the entertainment for the Or it was just a Galaxy's convention. Edge commercial. Like, that's where you need to go. <laughs> that's why you're here. So. Yes. <laughs> 
it could like all the major presentations are just like the Galaxy's Edge presentation from this year. It's just people bringing out like the Coca Cola bottles. <laughs> like, <"Woo." laughs> You're amusing yourself, Rachel. <laughs> it's why I'm generally quite a happy person. I'm very easily amused. Right, the next story is that Mark Hamill has commented on his role in The Rise of Skywalker and he has some shocking information, Kirsty. So yeah, would you care to read this out? Yeah, this was an interview of AP Entertainment reported by Slashfilm. They asked him, is this really going to be your last Star Wars appearance? And he said, I sure hope so. Why? Well, because I had closure in the last one. The fact that I'm involved in any capacity is only because of that peculiar aspect of the Star Wars mythology, where if you're a Jedi, you get to come back and make a curtain call as a Force ghost. I'm playing my violin for all the people who wanted Luke to be resurrected. Oh, don't be mean. (laughs) Sorry, that really is mean, isn't it? Yeah, no, that was going too far. I'm sorry, guys. If you really, really wanted that, I I do genuinely feel for you because it sucks to have all your hopes and dreams shattered. And you can be equally condescending <laughs> to me if my dreams don't come true. I don't know what makes a difference. He's still going to be in it, like, oh, as a force ghost. It's like, well, none of it's real. He's still <laughs> going to be there as a character speaking and contributing to the narrative. But he's not going to be kicking Snoke's ass. What, you want Snoke to come back too? Some people do. Zombie jewel, like <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I this is not surprising in the least, and I, I know that every time a Star Wars actor says anything, it's news. Yeah, but this is really him stating the obvious. Like this has kind of been clear. So, uh, don't know what more to say. Yeah, sorry. It's not really news, it's just confirmation, essentially. And, yeah, like, I'm just glad to see them not bullshitting people, you know, or playing, like, a, like, game of being coy about it or anything, you know? Like, I don't see why they would do that other than to string people along, which would just inevitably create even more outrage and more upset. So, yeah, I'm glad he's just being plain speaking into the point. Yeah, I'm a force ghost. Deal with it. Yeah, I mean, the way The Last Jedi ends for him, it's pretty clear that he goes off into the Force. So, I, I don't know how else anyone could interpret that. The human mind is a wonderful thing, Kirsty. Well, there's, I know there's always theories out there, but hopefully no one's too attached to that, like you say, otherwise it would be upsetting. Exactly. Cool. You'll still get your Luke Skywalker, don't worry. Yeah. And I think um, we were saying off the show, Kirsty, that like this doesn't necessarily rule out Mark Hamill giving his voice for an animated show or something like that. Oh no. Yeah. No, I mean they're pushing this as the last in the Skywalker series, so that's not too surprising, but it doesn't mean they can't go back and do stories that fill in that those 30 years. Exactly. And I'm sure Mark would be game for that under the right circumstances. And... Oh yeah, he even did Forces of Destiny. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? It was like old Luke voice coming from a young Luke body. <laughs> Yeah, I think he did a pretty good job considering, though. Yeah, yeah, like, no, he did. If you can get Mark Hamill, you should get Mark Hamill. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him coming back for that kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. Okay, cool. And then the last news thing to talk about is that Kerry Russell has had a few things to say about the rise of Skywalker. And this is from AP News. So Kerry Russell says that when J.J. Abrams sent her his version of the script for Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, it overwhelmed her. 
When I read his script that he wrote, I cried, she told the Associated Press in a recent interview. I mean, who knows what it will turn out to be, and I hope it remains true to what he originally wanted. Russell says Abrams is the right person to finish the saga because he cares. He's not trying to change it to be something else, she said. He really respects what it is. So yeah, have fun reading into that, Kirsty. Um, <laughs> I find it hard to believe that he would just send her the entire script, and I'm sure that's not what she meant, but mm. it's kind of how it's being reported. She cried because she's going to be in Star Wars, that's cool. It is hard to say what she's actually talking about, because the way it's presented is made to read as if she were sent the whole script. Which is absolute nonsense, I'm just going to say put that out there. Like... It seems highly unlikely. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, I have heard of the Star Wars movies, reports of them like calling the actors into their agent's office like with a copy of the script on like brightly coloured paper so it can't be copied or anything. And then they are left with the script for like two hours so they can read it. And then someone takes the script away so they cannot keep it in any shape or form. So it's possible that something like that happened and that she could have read the whole thing under those terms. I definitely don't think he like used his Gmail account to send her it as an attachment. Let's put it that way. But wasn't there for the lot a lot of the promotion for The Last Jedi, there were a lot of actors implying that they didn't really know what was going on with other strands of the story that they weren't involved in? Yes. <laughs> and those were lead cast members. Yeah. No, which again, like, does make it seem more doubtful that she has read the whole script. But regardless, it's the sort of quote that could mean anything, basically, in terms of her saying that it made her cry. So it could just be like, oh, wow, I'm in Star Wars. I have a Star Wars character written just for me. That could make her cry. Or it could be her character is involved in some deeply moving like moments that's like got lots of emotional heft behind it. Or it could mean that characters other than Zori are involved in like a really emotionally powerful arc overall that really moved her you know it could be any number of those things or none of them so it's a kind of quote that is a bit of a fool's errand to try and read into it because you can make it whatever you want basically but i'm glad that she was moved by it of course she's not going to say i read it and it was fine that was a bit indifferent to be honest (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, like it's nice. It's the sort of thing you want to hear. You know, you want to hear about someone being impressed and like moved by something. Well, that's the thing. All, all we can ask for is to be emotionally moved by the story, whatever it is. So if it's good enough for Carrie, it's good enough for me. Exactly. Like, <laughs> I'm not really sure what she's trying to say with, he's not trying to change it to be something else. He really respects what it is. I guess she's trying to like make that point about it being true to like the pure essence of original star wars but again that's another similarly nebulous and often meaningless concept yeah and i would have no idea if she's like aware of the fandom debate surrounding the last movie or like what the sequel trilogy is trying to do or anything like that Mm. i'm guessing she's not really fussed um so (laughs) yeah she's just saying something nice about jj i'm not going to read anything more into that yeah, so they have a long-standing relationship where they've worked together on quite a few movies and TV shows, so it makes sense it should be a major cheerleader for him. Sure. I mean, you know, the opposite of what this would be is, yeah, he's trashing it and doesn't care about Star Wars. <laughs> so, not surprising that she's going this way. Sure. Oh, so 
sometimes I just wish you could like have actors without filter where they just say all sorts of wild stuff. It would be really entertaining. Well, I'm sure she will say more interesting things afterwards and maybe in the lead up to the actual press tour. But right now it's like, yeah, I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. What more could we ask for? <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. So, with all the news out of the way, let's proceed to our spotlight, which is going to be on Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice. So, would you care to read out the synopsis for this book, Kirsty, just so people have a touchstone for what the book's actually about? Uh, sure, it's quite long. So, sorry in advance to people who are already sick of my voice. Um, an unexpected offer threatens the bond between Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi as the two Jedi navigate a dangerous new planet and an uncertain future. A Jedi must be a fearless warrior, a guardian of justice, and a scholar in the ways of the Force. But perhaps a Jedi's most essential duty is to pass on what they have learned. Master Yoda trained Dooku, Dooku trained Qui-Gon Jinn, and now Qui-Gon has a Padawan of his own. But while Qui-Gon has faced all manners of threats and danger as a Jedi, nothing has ever scared him like the thought of failing his apprentice. Obi-Wan Kenobi has deep respect for his master, but struggles to understand him. Why must Qui-Gon so often disregard the laws that bind the Jedi? Why is Qui-Gon drawn to ancient Jedi prophecies instead of more practical concerns? And why wasn't Obi-Wan told that Qui-Gon is considering an invitation to join the Jedi Council, knowing it would mean the end of their partnership? The simple answer scares him. Obi-Wan has failed his master. When Jedi Rail Everos, another former student of Dooku, requests their assistance with a political dispute, Jin and Kenobi travel to the Royal Court of Vajal for what may be their final mission together. What should be a simple assignment quickly becomes clouded by deceit, and by visions of violent disaster that take hold in Qui-Gon's mind. As Qui-Gon's faith in prophecy grows, Obi-Wan's faith in him is tested, just as a threat surfaces that will demand that Master and Apprentice come together as never before, or be divided forever. God, that really is a long description. Where is this from? That really is. Yeah, it's the publisher's summary. Oh my god, it's, <laughs> it's like... That's ridiculous at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for reading it though, because I do think it's useful. Like, I would be very interested, to be honest, to know if anyone listens to these discussions without having read the books themselves. But in the past, I'm sometimes cognizant of the fact that if people have not read these books, it's just going to sound like complete, like, auditory noise. <laughs> Yeah, and I would just recommend in general don't listen to us if you're planning on reading the book eventually and just haven't got round to it because obviously we'll be getting spoilery. Exactly. You want to save those moments to experience yourself. So yeah, and that's especially true of this one because there's lots of big shock and twist moments. So yeah, you're really shooting yourself in the foot if you listen to us (laughs) without having um, first read the book in question. But yeah, this was a real grower for me. It took me a while to get into it, but I think it had a really amazing third act and I really loved all the exciting revelations and twists and turns that came about. So yeah, ultimately I found it a very rewarding experience. And the way it ended actually made me go right back to the beginning of the book again because it basically reframes what you were reading, or at least it certainly did for me. Uh, What are you referring to there? I'm referring to the fact that it turns out that Fanray was actually at the heart of the plot to oh, like see. stop the treaty and she wanted to remain an absolute monarch because mm-hmm. it made me especially interested in revisiting all the scenes where she appeared and seeing those like machinations going in her mind. 
and I've already started rereading it with that in mind and it is very interesting because it does reframe everything yeah it obviously was something that she was kind of going over in her head and like trying to figure out who she should listen to in terms of her advisors and Avaros mm-hmm. um, yeah and overall I think that really contributed to the, the theme in general for the story of teenage rebellion and them finding their own way and uh, this idea of rebelling against either rebellious masters, because Qui-Gon and Rail are both kind of roguish, they mm-hmm. go their own way. So it's like, does that then make their apprentices more conservative, even though they're acting in a retaliatory, like, rebellious way? It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, my overall impressions of the book... Um, it solidifies Claudia Gray as my favourite Star Wars writer. I feel like I say that every time she writes a new book, but it's just how I feel. Um, her prose is just a pleasure. Like, it's just really nice to read her stories. Um, and sometimes I struggle to get through Star Wars books, to be honest. So, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, where it feels more like a pleasure than like a burden. <laughs> Basically, yeah, she's a very great. talented writer, so it just feels very vivid. And even the action scenes, I struggle sometimes with action scenes in books for Star Wars. I'm like, mm, I feel like this would be better conveyed on screen, but she does a good job with something that I consider quite difficult. Um, and she has this ability to develop really complex relationships between characters that feel very relatable, um, that have previously not interested me too much, if I'm going to be truly honest. Mm. Like, you know, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan's relationship is obviously central to The Phantom Menace, but it never really gripped me, um, because... And I, this is true to an extent in this book, it's part of why Obi-Wan finds him so frustrating, that he's a bit of an enigma, and keeps his distance, and doesn't always say how he feels. Um, but that feels real. It's frustrating and contradictory and dysfunctional, and it's sometimes characterised by betrayal. It's very intense, but there's also that real love and respect between them. So, yeah, that I really appreciated that because I don't want to compare things too much, but in my mind, this is how you do a prequel era novel with real stakes and real conflict mm. um, and real meaning that you can take away and mull over afterwards. Yeah, no, it's really impressive, to be honest, because I came to it in a similar position to you where that re- dynamic between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan had never been super fascinating to me because they would just always seemed like good loyal Jedi Knights to me in the movies and I-, I like both characters they're fine but I didn't find them especially compelling and I didn't think of them as having that much of an interesting inner life so I really liked how the book delved deep into their characters and their thought processes and it is all very it's written with great clarity so you always are able to see where they're coming from and even though you might favor one person's side over the other in the equation you can absolutely understand why decisions are being made and why feelings are being felt and yeah so it's just a credit to Grey's ability because she's always strongest I think with all that emotional character stuff yeah and even stuff that was only hinted at but was kind of like oh you might get a future story about this thing but it it added to the richness of the characters and felt real like you know uh, when Qui-Gon walks in on rail and he has um, is it Selby in his bed 
Um, and <laughs> yes. then they start talking about how, you know, the ethics of that for the Jedi. Um, and Rail kind of hints at the fact that Qui-Gon had, well, a romance that he mm. was in love. And that's kind of the, the distinction that Qui-Gon makes. He says it's different when you're in love with someone as opposed to just kind of pursuing this hedonistic pleasure. Um, but Rail makes the good point that actually being in love is almost worse because that's the intimate attachments that obviously we see in the prequels Yoda is warning Anakin about. Um, so... Yeah, Qui-Gon had a romance 20 years earlier, and I'm desperate to know the details of that. Yeah, hopefully that's going to be a future Claudia Gray novel. Yeah, well, someone, but it's like, you can't just dangle that out there and then leave me hanging. <laughs> yeah, no, that's quite revelatory for me, because, yeah, Qui-Gon especially, he really fits that. He's like the epitome of the monk stereotype, isn't he? You know, so, again, you don't think of him as being... A pas- passionate or emotionally involved but yeah I can see like hot young Liam Neeson getting like emotionally attached to someone that's really compelling so yeah I look forward to that story one day down the line um, and I know you also really liked the original characters in the book right Kirsty? Yeah Pax and Rahara I really bought into their relationship um, I loved their backstories they felt quite unique for Star Wars um, but also completely in line with how we understand the universe. So Pax makes complete sense as a character for someone who would have been raised by protocol droids. <laughs> it's really interesting to see that. I wouldn't have thought of that as an idea for a character. But seeing someone like that come to grips with the fact that they have feelings for this other person. Um, yeah, very interesting. Great concepts, very simple, but is really well portrayed. And yeah, I really liked... Um, Rahara as well and how she's like depicted as like overcoming that horrible childhood as a slave basically to a corporation and it's an interesting journey for her to go from fleeing that past and basically acting like it never happened to having to confront it head on and sort of exercise those demons so yeah I thought she had a really nice solid arc as well which is good because often original characters in Star Wars novels they can feel very superficial a lot of the time and you just don't care about them so it's nice to have someone with a really clearly defined story and where you can root for them and you come to care about them just in the space of one novel. I think that's a real strength of Claudia's writing like I really love um, Ransom Castafo from Bloodline as well. Yeah, and another great original character in the book is obviously Rail himself, um, who also appeared in Jedi Lost, although I think he was only pretty briefly in that. Yeah, it's an interesting foil character for Qui-Gon, really, because they're both obviously previous apprentices of Dooku, who at this point we're supposed to understand well, he's left the, the Jedi Order, so we see that at the end of Jedi Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of in that murky area where it's like, oh, probably on the dark side, probably searching for an apprentice, but we don't know the details because the characters don't. Um, and it's this kind of thread throughout the story, in my opinion, that they're kind of hinting that maybe Rail will go that way because he has this moral ambiguity about him and he's haunted by things that he's done wrong in the past. Um, and then things are going to go very wrong with Fanry. Um, so... Qui-Gon's talking about how he chooses the light because it's the light um, and eventually Rail makes that same argument to Dooku when he talks to him on the hologram but mm. 
it it kind of sits on this knife edge where it's like you could just as easily see him making the wrong decision because at, at that point it's like do I have anything left and he chooses to return to Coruscant and face the Jedi Order for what he's done but he could run away exactly and it leaves it open as a possibility because Dooku's obviously targeting him at a vulnerable moment and what's to say like he doesn't feel even more vulnerable after facing the Jedi Councils he might be punished or he might become like a scapegoat kind of for what happened because yeah again he did fail Fanry in a way so it reflects very badly on him that she despite everything still wanted to be an absolute ruler and completely turned on his authority so i don't think it would be fair to blame him for that i could see it happening and then that then building resentment in him so i think that could be an interesting sequel to this oh see we feel very differently on that i feel it was very clear at the end that he chose the light um and i thought that was a very interesting arc for him i i agree that he chose the light i just I think based on what happens to him next, I don't think it's like a final decision. You know, I think there's room for things to happen that would push him into a crisis and would perhaps make him question that choice. You know, so I agree that he chose the light at the end of this book, but I don't think that's necessarily the only time he's going to be presented with that choice. I could see Dooku trying again, basically. Oh, okay. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, I feel differently, but I also understand what you're saying because there's... You know, there's clear stuff throughout the story that kind of relates to Luke and the Last Jedi, actually, about how you always have to choose the light. It's a daily struggle. The the dark is always in there within yourself. But yeah, I just found this, the way that Rael had to deal with what happened with Nim um, and then kind of projecting Nim onto Fanry and because of that, like not quite seeing her as a person with her own distinct personality and interests and ambitions. kind of like I don't know not being able to see her because he cared so much Mm. it set him up to fail from the very beginning kind of yeah well just you know that he wasn't really given a chance because this entire relationship that he felt was based on trust and him caring for her and really listening to her and understanding her um, she says actually you didn't listen to me and because of that I stopped listening to you um yeah, that's kind of devastating. Yeah, it was interesting to see how Fanry was depicted in it because she's kind of like the villain of it towards the end, but you can always understand where she's coming from. There's obviously limits to that understanding because ultimately she tries to assert herself as an absolute monarch and she's very clearly shown to not really care that much if people are killed as a result of her pursuing her vengeance basically and that's the ultimate point at which people realize okay we need to stop this person um but yeah it's a very quintessential like coming of age thing for her where she asserts herself as an independent person free of all these guardians and of these protectors that really she's just been resenting possibly for years and years until she developed these plans to like break away from their influence and yeah it's a character I'd be interested to see again in a few years hmm. I, know, I I really liked a lot of these characters and I thought they served this story well but I think we feel quite differently about a lot of this because I feel like the kind of things are wrapped up pretty pretty clearly here and then I, I, I know you could take them elsewhere but I feel like their arcs are pretty complete by the end of the story 
Sure, I think it's probably just because I write fan fiction, you know. So, oh, okay. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always thinking about, like, what could happen next to this person. Because it is, as you say, it's fully wrapped up in, in the context of this novel. And I don't think it needs a sequel. And I don't think you necessarily need to revisit that character. I just think there's interest in narrative potential if they were to. Hmm. Yeah, because I guess I'm thinking about how this fits into the larger arcs of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. But... And and these characters are there to help them kind of on their way and act as foils and mirrors and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I think of them as real characters in their own right. Like they are fully fleshed out and interesting. Um, but I'd I'd be surprised if they end up turning up in another book. But who knows? Yeah, I, I have a habit of doing that though. Like I I'm always the person who thinks that a novel becomes most interesting just as it's ending. And I'm like oh, what happens now? Is exactly the same with Queen Shadow. Like, although to be fair, I think in Queen's Shadow is much more over about teasing. Oh, you want to see what happens next, huh? 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 In terms of Sabe and the other guy trying to investigate Padme's death, so I think that's a very yeah. clear setup for something else. You do not get that sort of setup at the end of Master and Apprentice. Yeah, it's more like you understand then how it leads into the Phantom Menace. You know, eight nine years later, um, because obviously this is set at the time when Anakin's being conceived slash born, right? Yep. So that's kind of what ties in with the prophecy, the time of the prophecy is at hand. Um, so I guess Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan iron out the complexities of their relationship and at this point forward they fully trust each other and that's when they kind of start to have more fun. Yeah, I also liked how the book was kind of bookended by those scenes with Qui-Gon's funeral. And you get those scenes where Obi-Wan's reflecting on that relationship between them and the lessons learned and all that sort of stuff. I felt that was a nice way to sort of draw everything together with a neat bow. Yeah. Um, I think, well, it's always easy to bring the Anakin and Obi-Wan feels, let's face it, but there were surprising moments throughout the book that got me, like when he's... um, showing Fanry how his lightsaber works, mm-hmm. which obviously has implications for later on in the story. <laughs> yes. Probably shouldn't have done that, Obi-Wan. Um, but they have this conversation where she's asking, well, you know, you guys are the only ones that have lightsabers because there aren't any Sith anymore. So what happens when two Jedi fight? And he was like, oh, well, that would never happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Obi-Wan. <laughs> I'm always feeling sad about Obi-Wan. Yeah, no. Like, you just think back to that, you were the chosen one, Anakin! Well, that's that's what's so interesting, because, I mean, again, coming back to the epilogue that you just mentioned, he's really, like, kind of bringing himself around to the idea of believing in the prophecy, because that's what Qui-Gon did. Um, and now Anakin's in his life, and he's promised to take him on as an apprentice, even though he's still so young himself, and literally just became a Jedi Knight. But, um was he ever truly sure that Anakin was the chosen one? Mm. Or did he just love Qui-Gon so much that he went along with that because he wanted to honour his memory? I kind of feel like it's the latter, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. No, it is. Not that- there's such a tension between them with you know, the, the role of prophecies. Because at the beginning, when they, you have younger Obi-Wan kind of doing his homework and following Qui-Gon around the Jedi archives... He seems very bored and he doesn't believe that the prophecy should be taken literally because that's what a lot of the Jedi think. 
um, and is just completely bemused by Qui-Gon's fascination with them. Um, and that's kind of a thread throughout the story, right? Like, should you be taking this stuff literally? Even when you have what you think is a vision yourself, um, that shouldn't really change anything. Uh, wanting to know the future is a path to the dark side. They have lots of conversations about this kind of thing. Um, and I think he comes around to it in the end because Qui-Gon's obviously proven right in terms of the actual events of the story. But in terms of believing it for himself going forward, I still don't think he's quite there. Sure. Yeah. No, like, it's a really fascinating, like, dynamic, like, in terms of Obi-Wan and prophecies. <laughs> because, yeah, he seems like a typical schoolboy, basically, in terms of his relationship to them. So he just considers them fusty old books, basically. Or at least the Star Wars equivalent of that, because I don't think they're literal books. I think they're, like, in holocrons and stuff. Um, and... I think he looks at them as like an historical resource for viewing how the Jedi felt about things during the time that the prophecy was made. Yeah, that's what Qui-Gon teaches him. Yeah, but that's not actually what he thinks, is it? It's like he's kind of... Uh, to kind of justify his interest in them as historical artifacts as opposed to like things that he actually thinks will come to pass. Mm. And he got that from Dooku as well, because Dooku wasn't entirely honest with him <laughs> how he felt about the, the prophecies, so... 100%. It's definitely an interest that goes beyond the mere academic. Mm -hmm. On the note of prophecies, would you like to play a fun game of Guess the Prophecy? <laughs> sure. That doesn't sound dangerous at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So I'm going to read you some prophecies from Master and Apprentice and going to ask you what they correspond to in the Star Wars canon, if anything. Okay. Some of these might be clearer than others. <laughs> that That's exactly the case. So yeah, this will be fun. Um, cool. So first one. She who will be born to darkness will give birth to darkness. Well, it's got to be Leia, hasn't it? Yeah, basically. Especially as this was like an old, old Iranian prophecy, right? It was in that language, I think. Wow, that's when impressive. First, I think when they were first translating it. But um, I don't know how I feel about it in terms of kind of erasing Padme. Born to darkness? That's not Padme. Yeah. That's pretty sucky. Basically, you're raising the mother, guys. What are you doing? It seems to allude to Leia obviously being the daughter of Darth Vader and the mother of Supreme Leader Kylo Ren. The ultimate evil in the galaxy. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very bad. But yes, I agree with you. I think that is the one true interpretation of that prophecy. <laughs> and all of us are wrong. <laughs> Either that or it's just some random lady. You. Yeah, I had a bad kid and a bad dad. Okay. When the Kyber that is not Kyber shines forth, the time of the prophecy will be at hand. Also, we see that in the book, right? Because mm -hmm. they find those crystals that seem like Kyber crystals but aren't. Yeah. Um, it becomes and this a pivotal is time... plot point. <laughs> yeah, it's the time of prophecy because this is the time period in which Anakin is born and everything starts going to shit for the Jedi. <laughs> oh, interesting. I had a slightly different, like a more specific interpretation of this one. Because there's obviously the plot point in the book about like Obi-Wan's lightsaber being tampered with to replace the crystal. Mm -hmm. And like it does activate, it works as a lightsaber. And that's the point at which Qui-Gon's like prophecy slash vision comes true, like within Master and Apprentice. So you mean like the prophecy concerning Fanry specifically? Yes. 
Okay, I was taking it to mean more in general, so like this is the era when all of these prophecies are kind of going to start coming true. Right. So it's a very interesting time in the galaxy's history, but um, again, like either could apply. Yeah, I think they're both valid. Um, right. One will ascend to the highest of the Jedi, despite the foreboding of those who would serve with him. Hmm. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Surely it's got to be Anakin, right? Well, oh, that's what I think so. But the highest of the Jedi, I mean, they never really made him a master. Yeah. It's a little bit iffy, but like, and again, it could just be some tote random person, you know? But it says Anakin to me just because we know everyone had all those doubts and uncertainties about letting him in in the first place. Right. Okay. I understand that. Yeah. Okay. He who learns to conquer death will, through his greatest student, live again. So this, I have to think it relates to Plagueis and uh, Palpatine, but mm. not quite sure how. I wonder if this is going to play into the Rise of Skywalker at all. Yeah, this is one of the more interesting ones to me for that reason, because it made all my Rise of Skywalker alarm bells go off in a good way. It's like, ooh, mm. could this play in? But yeah, we'll need to see what happens, basically, before going too deep with that one. Mm-hmm. Only through sacrifice of many Jedi will the Order cleanse the sin done to the nameless. Um, my first thought was this was obviously relating to Order sixty six. <laughs> yes. So I don't know why I find that funny. It's like <laughs> mass massacre of Jedi. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Please well, continue. it is interesting because it's saying it's implying that you know it's sacrifice that cleanses sin. So that almost implies that the Jedi had it coming and deserved it. Um, so I, I do wonder if that relates at all to their general apathy towards the idea of slavery in the galaxy, to how they use clones. Um, mm. I don't know. That's a really good interpretation, especially the whole nameless thing, because, yeah, like my brain isn't working so good today <laughs> but i think it makes sense for the nameless to refer to people who are disenfranchised people who are generally overlooked and their needs not taken into account etc etc hmm. um right the danger of the past is not past but sleeps in an egg when the egg cracks it will threaten the galaxy entire it's got to be the sif right i guess or again relating to palpatine um, but yeah, like in terms of it being dormant, yeah, they're they're completely sure that the Sith are a part of the past, and obviously we know that's not true, because at the end that you know Obi Wan's going through his thoughts and he he's like, wow, Qui Gon was the first Jedi in a thousand years to be killed by a Sith. Everything that we thought we knew about this galaxy is kind of called into question now. Exactly, pretty wild. When the force itself sickens, past and future must split and combine. Um, I mean, do you think this is relating to the sequel trilogy when the force gets thrown out of balance again? That's kind of my read of it. Like, nothing else immediately seems to click in terms of this one. And it would tie in a lot in terms of the whole kill the past thing and learning mm. that that isn't the right way. That it's got to be about finding a balance between past and future. Um, right. So, yeah, this seems to be a sequel trilogy one to me. Yeah, it's kind of described in a vaguer way, but 
um, yeah, has what we could consider thematic resonance in terms of Ray and Kylo's discussions about past and the future and how Ray chooses to go forward. And then finally, this one will be the true challenge. Um, <laughs> a chosen one shall come, born of no father, and through him will ultimate balance in the Force be restored. It's definitely mm. about Salacious Bikram. <laughs> yes. I was going to say Unkoplat. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it if you just had Star Wars where everything was the same, but Darth Vader was Unkoplat. Saying all the same lines, he just looked like Uncomplet. Oh dear. <laughs> Sorry, again, that's not funny to anyone but me, but No, I do feel that this is interesting because it's so specific in terms of saying born of no father. So Qui-Gon reads this, then eight years later, eight, nine years later, he meets Shmi and she tells him, Oh, there was no father. Mm. Like, how would he not think that Anakin was the chosen one? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, you're not gonna be randomly running into like random chicks were like oh my baby has no father <laughs> it's not gonna be a regular occurrence and then the the kid is extremely strong in the force and fascinated by the jedi it's like okay well you're the chosen one anakin exactly yeah. congratulations so yeah the mere existence of anakin makes it easy to understand why qui-gon and obi-wan would just buy into the whole prophecy business 100 percent, basically <laughs> at that mm. point because it seems foolish not to when you're presented with what on the surface appears to be very clear-cut evidence that wow there's some real merit in this prophecy business right wow well that's what's interesting because we skip forward and yoda's like oh the, the prophecy misread could have been and i know he's in general pretty skeptical about them and for that reason well maybe one of many he's unsure about qui-gon as a potential addition to the council um but yeah, this seems pretty unambiguous to me, really. Yeah, what else can it be, basically? It's gotta be Anakin. Um, oh, yeah. and side note, any time prequel Yoda pops, something, pops up in something, it makes me dislike him more. Oh, 100%, yeah. Every time, I don't think it's possible to dislike him more, and then he comes across as an even more pompous git, so. Yeah, like really just the whole Jedi Council just looks so bad and so dumb. <laughs> But, but I don't know. The others don't seem anywhere near as bad as Yoda, Yoda to me. Like, why? Why do I find him so insufferable? Is that the intention? Like, I definitely think we're meant to see that they got a lot wrong and they had mistakes to atone for. But I agree with you. I just find him totally obnoxious and even repulsive at certain points. It's yeah. like, dude, you're just hateful. <laughs> like why are you leading this whole thing you're rubbish <laughs> oh man it makes me like want to go back to the more innocent days when we literally just had Empire Strikes Back Yoda and everything was so simple and he was just saying he's nice like uh, friendly uncontroversial like statements about existence and the force and stuff like, I don't know he was still a liar there <laughs> he was still a liar but we only really get to grips with that like through other media and later films and stuff. I know some of it comes about in Empire itself, but in a more playful fashion, you know, <laughs> in low stakes, lower stakes. Um, but yeah, he's just a git, basically. So I hate Yoda. Like, and it's not a criticism of the book, it's just the type of character he is. He's infuriating. Yeah, he's 
not very empathetic and the way he goes out of his way to say to Qui-Gon well I didn't want you on the council but I guess it's not really in my control it's like that's just mean yep so it's fairly bad um yeah and then the last thing that I really wanted to cover before we like wrapped up was the whole political situation on Pajal because that takes up a large portion of the book and I believe it's a new planet that we haven't really seen seen explored in any of the other media. Is that right, Kirsty? I mean, I didn't recognise it, so it might be out there already in existence in wider canon, but I don't know of a story that involves it, so... Yeah, same. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting, this idea of a planet being so interconnected with a private corporation and the ramifications of that corporation being a really evil thing basically that practices slavery and uses slave labor with apparent impunity and i felt it was presented in a really interesting way because again it just shows the limits of the jedi order and all the moral gray area that's going on with them because there are some mentions made of trying to take steps to like change things and to gradually transition away from that system but Again, I just got a general feeling of apathy. There wasn't like much urgency in terms of people feeling a need to bring that corporation down. And again, it just underlines the negatives of the whole non-interventionist approach that, that the Jedi adopt. Yeah. I mean, you know, we see Qui-Gon throughout the story wrestling with the Republic and the Jedi's apathy towards slavery outside of its jurisdiction which <laughs> seems to be the excuse like you know there's this corporation which actually works within the republic and is very openly using slaves and yet they don't really care that much so we know by the end they have this new treaty but they would have been totally cool to go ahead with the other one it was only because one qui-gon stuck his spokes in the wheel like he he was like no i'm actually not going to sign that on behalf of the republic and that was obviously a huge deal that threw his position into doubt and made Obi-Wan make the choice to go behind his back and speak to the council. Um, and then, of course, Fanry's own actions made it necessary for there to be a new treaty. But, yeah, it doesn't really paint them in a good light. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this is going to kind of make me reassess my attitude towards uh, Qui-Gon in The Phantom Menace, because... In that movie, he always seemed kind of weirdly unconcerned about Shmi and slavery in general. Mm. Just wanted Anakin. But um, I understand it a bit more now. <laughs> because <laughs> while they can free people in certain situations, like he has this this new treaty, um, they seem very specific. And it's bloody hard work. And uh, the council is not really willing to work with him on that stuff. Um yeah. Like if I'm the only person who cares about it, are we going to get that change on a mass scale? Exactly. So there was an interesting line in the book that I can't remember exactly, but it was something along the lines of Qui-Gon was quite open to like playing a game of dice or something to try and win some win someone's freedom, you know, in sort of like a very small scale kind of offhand type of way. So he did what he could in very small ways but like as one person he obviously couldn't try and bring these entire vast systems of injustice and slavery down and he recognized that he he did what he could in small ways but he was very limited 
Yeah, which I think, you know, really ties into how we might understand politics in the real world, that it's not to say that one person can't make a difference. We all can. Mm. We should stand up for what we believe in. But you need these big systemic changes to actually create long-standing effects. Um, I mean, I f- found this book very political for obvious reasons, but it's kind of funny if you think about, like, the keep, keep politics out of Star Wars crowd. <laughs> it's like, I wonder how they would feel about this book, because... Obviously, it paralleled many concerns that we have in the real world about corporations' influence on real life and politicians and corruption and how they influence policy um, and how Qui-Gon, like, he straight up points out that it's not possible for the benefits to Cherka to be in line with the overall well-being of the planet, mm. um, which kind of goes against that kind of centrist philosophy. Um I mean, we even had gerrymandering in there with the disenfranchisement of uh, the people who lived on Pajal's moon because mm. they were downplaying the accurate population numbers and denying them votes. Like, it felt it felt very real to me. Yeah. What did you um, make of that whole idea of the like art troupe or like performance artists being framed <laughs> as like the dissidents? Uh. Well, it didn't feel right from the start. Did it? I yeah, mean, it just didn't I, I make like, any what? sense. It didn't make any sense for why they would still be going ahead with their like artistic statements as well as these ridiculously overblown violent gestures. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there was something off there. Um. And you could tell like Obi Wan and Qui Gon were kind of getting there. Like they were thinking about it and why. They were like, oh, well, maybe this stuff was kind of set up in advance before they decided to get more violent. And it's like, oh, maybe they're just different people. <laughs> It always rang false. Yeah, it was very revealing about Avaros because ultimately he didn't care. So, yeah. No, I loved um like how that character was depicted. Like he is like a much more extreme version of Qui Gon in like the way he like flouts the conventions and stuff. So he is still a Jedi and he remains true to it right to the very end. But. Yeah, like in terms of the superficial acquiescence to the traditions and the manner in which Jedi are expected to present themselves and how they're meant to behave, he just doesn't give a shit. And it was entertaining. Yeah, and I just loved how that contrasted with Qui-Gon's development because you really see him coming to terms with how different he is from the rest of the Jedi and the Council, um, contrasting it with them being bound to Coruscant, far from the living force, and how even when he's in Coruscant, his favourite place to go is the garden because he values plants and that kind of connection to nature mm-hmm. um, and delights in its mysticism, which probably isn't of too much interest to the rest of the Jedi at this point, which seems strange in itself, but obviously it was kind of a theme of the prequels, them literally being in their ivory tower. And how Obi-Wan comes to appreciate that over time as well. Because mm. you see him connecting to the, is it Varactyl, the animal that he rides on the ground? Yes, hunt? that's right. Yeah, really loved that. Yeah, no, it's cool. Like, Dooku's obviously a villain, but he certainly had interest in students, basically. He seems to have been like a pretty inspirational master in terms of creating people who defied convention. But still, surprisingly, managed to be quite good Jedi. So, congrats, Dooku. (laughs) You did something right. You did something good. It's all good, man. (laughs) Oh, dear me. So funny. Um, It's not actually funny. I don't know why I said that. Um, But yeah, um, just as we're about to wind up, I had a specific quote that I wanted to read because I liked it very much. 
Um, right, okay. So I don't have a page number for this, unfortunately. So I was reading the book on my Kindle and finding specific page numbers on Kindle is a nightmare, so I don't even bother. It's not Pax calling Obi-Wan's haircut stupid, is it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I very much enjoyed that part. <laughs> it's not, I'm afraid. Sorry. You should read that part out, though, is your quote. Well, I don't have the quote to hand. I just remember it happening and being like, yeah, I agree, Pax. You're an intellectual. <laughs> I'm glad you had that contribution, Kirsty. It's great. <laughs> um, I'm afraid mine is much more abstract and artsy-fartsy. I um, see. So, the desire to know the future sprang from a desire to control the future. The desire to control the future sprang from fear. The fear of the depthless pain in loss that the future might hold. Unfortunately, I wrote that down without context. So, I can't contextualise <laughs> that for you much in relation okay. to what happens in master and apprentice but i like that quote very much because i think that is a message and theme that's very true to the whole of star wars so i saw that and i was like that's worded really well and it's so true so yeah that's my summative contribution it was very well written i enjoyed the book and it has some badass quotes about star wars stuff Hmm. there were lots of passages like that that were really interesting and well written um like towards the end um qui-gon he was just thinking to himself he wasn't saying it aloud but he was basically espousing what i would consider quite a Taoist philosophy which is you know pretty close to what i would understand the core jedi reading to be and what the um the prequel jedi were kind of edging away from and that might have been part of their downfall um it says knowing the future meant surrendering to fate surrendering to the ebb and flow of life only through that surrender could the force be truly known. Mm. So this is Qui-Gon really like starting to embrace the fact that, and he says it throughout, he's like, I'm not turning to the dark side just because I'm interested in the future and um, prophecies. Mm. Because he doesn't seek to control it. It's that knowing it and then surrendering to it is freeing. Yeah. Um, And we can all live like that. You know, we don't have to know the future, but we can anticipate that there is one. And to an extent, it's out of our control. So you just have to go with it and make the best of any situation. Sure. Yeah, it's in a way that's Rail's mistake, isn't it? In terms of how things play out in the book with Fanry, because he's so, so desperate to avoid repeating his mistakes with his first apprentice that he like tries to like have control over Fanry in all things mm-hmm. and tries to constrain her like or at least she sees it as being constrained whereas he sees it as protecting her mm-hmm. and through the very way in which he tries to protect her he's actually bringing forth the worst scenario possible the thing that he feared most for her where she literally ends up a felon in jail so yeah it's a lesson children like don't like try to avert a bad future too much because you might end up creating it which again is exactly what happens with Anakin so patterns again and again and again yeah absolutely it's it's not really accepting your shadow basically that's what it comes down to right that um Rail is still haunted by what happened with Nim and tries to go into this new relationship and leave that behind him but of course he's not he's, he's thinking about it constantly Um, brings it up unintentionally with Qui-Gon because it's all he can think about Mm. Um, and yeah just can't escape that so ends up making new mistakes but because of that um, which is obviously tragic Mm. but I just love the way this book ends with I mean it it ends on as happy a note as possible really considering we then have that epilogue with the death (laughs) yes Um, it's true 
you know, it's Qui-Gon going off and saying goodbye to Pax and Rahara and noticing that they have newly intimate body language. Be still my <laughs> ship of heart. Yes. Um, yeah, it just, it has like a job well done feel to it. Um, and you can see the evolution of their relationship. Um, I'm talking about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan now, but obviously that applies to Pax and Rahara too. Um, God, it broke my heart when Rahara got captured and Pax was kind of trying to come to terms with it and trying desperately to stay rational because that's what he knows. But, oh, what was the quote? It was something like, oh, I believe Pax said to himself that this is known as grief. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Limitations of a protocol droid upbringing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it those... all worked out. They got her back. Exactly. And another thing I really liked at the end was... um that realisation for Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon about why they were paired together in the first place yeah. with the idea that Obi-Wan started out quite rebellious and like not conforming and not like following orders and so they matched him with Qui-Gon because the only rebellion against Qui-Gon was to be as like perfect and obedient a Jedi as possible which mm-hmm. I thought was delightful I loved that yeah I thought that was a really neat rounding up of that interplay across the whole book um yeah, and that notion of teen rebellion and like, well, does it matter even what you're rebelling against or do you just need to rebel because you're a teenager? Yeah. Um, oh, and we got a Maz cameo. Wait, did we really? Oh my God, I missed that. Yes. Shit. One when... of the flashbacks, Rail is on Takadana talking to uh, Qui-Gon and uh, it says a small wizened creature who wore goggles and a strand of beads brings him a drink. Oh my God. <laughs> How can I be... Wow, I, I'm questioning everything. Did I even read this book? Is it was a very a quick moment, but okay. as soon as they said Takadana, I was like, oh, we're going to see Maz. Nice. So maybe she was just like the waitress at that point before she like graduated to like owning the place. Maybe, but I think she still kind of brings the drinks over to people. And it would be a good way to kind of... Because he was like talking pretty openly to Qui-Gon about like different Jedi and stuff. It's like, get some gossip, you know, it's valuable yeah. information. No, it's true. Maz is a very much boots on the ground person, which I appreciate. She's not your typical upper management, like sat off in her lofty tower. So good for her. So yeah, I'm sure there's like so much that we haven't covered here. Oh, sure. Because there was so much going on in this book. And I feel like it's one that's going to stick with me for a long time. And like you might go back and reread it now. Um, Yeah, it was just very well-rounded. Um, lots of conflict, lots of intrigue, lots of kind of hints at stuff that had happened in the past to pad things out, um, and a really in-depth exploration of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, I was very impressed, and it really won me over. I did find it a little bit slow to get going, but by the final act, I was really like into it and couldn't wait to see what happened next. And yeah, as you like probably realised from my earlier fan fiction e extrapolations <laughs> of all the original character stories, I would be very excited to see like a continuation in some way. And I don't expect that for all the characters by any means, but I think for some of them, especially Rail, I think we're definitely seeing him again. Um hmm. especially because he's already appeared in this and Jedi Lost, so I think they're setting him up. Yeah, I would say to anyone who's only read or listened to one of them that they are a really great two-parter oh sure series yeah um they tie together so well i think claudia gray and kevin scott did a really great job there 
Yeah, definitely. So one of my points I think about Jedi Lost when we were talking about that was the fact I wanted to see a bit more about Dooku's like descent into the dark side. And we do actually get some of that in Master and Apprentice. It's not a focus, but in terms of seeing Dooku's like growing obsession with the prophecies and the holocrons, that really comes across and I think that's useful as some gap filling basically for Jedi Lost. So they're definitely in sync with each other. Yeah, you feel for him in a way, because it's obviously that he's been trying to resist them himself, and then he turns up in his office and Qui-Gon's just sat there with one, and it's like, oh, you need to really get that out of here, I don't think I can handle that. And then when Qui-Gon comes back, it's like, no, I've changed my mind, let's explore this. It's like, oh no, Dooku, <laughs> I don't think that's a good path for you. Exactly. Qui-Gon like, can handle it, but you can't. Yeah, go on retreat, man, stay away, take the high ground. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, he's... He's a very interesting character. Yeah. No, more everyone, basically. That's the conclusion from this. More of everyone. Okay, cool. So I think that brings us to the end. I'm Rachel, and you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye.